Hello, everybody. Welcome back to church. All right, we're going to try that again. All right, everybody. Welcome back to church. So good to be back with our little studio audience here. Happy Palm Sunday to everybody watching. So excited to be together for church. I've been realizing that we haven't done our prayer that we always do to start our services. So I know. So uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. I've got it memorized. I don't know if any of you do, but we're going to do it all out loud. And so stumble through it if you have to do it along with us here. We don't have the words on the screen behind us, but we're still going to do it together. So here we go. Today is a good day. Jesus is alive. He is good and he is here. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Come and do what only you can do. We love you. We expect to meet with you. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Now with that, pull out your Bibles. Open up to Luke chapter 3. Make sure you have something to take notes with this morning. Uh, I am going to do some teaching today, so you better be ready. You better get your notes ready, get your Bible ready. We're starting in Luke 3, and we're ending in Luke 19. So we got a lot of ground to cover. And like we always say, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. So we're just going to do 16 chapters today, uh, and we'll see what happens. We are continuing our series that we started uh, last week, What's the Big Deal About Jesus? We are spending these few weeks together in the Gospel of Luke, reading his account of Jesus' life. And so much of the reason behind Luke writing the Gospel of Luke was to answer this question, What's the big deal about Jesus? Jesus had come, he had lived, he died, he resurrected. And now, 30 years or so after his death, the reality of his life is echoing around the world and changing people. It's changing communities. And people are wondering, what is the big deal about this Jesus? Last week, we talked about his birth. And this week, as we start off Passion Week, the week that celebrates his life, his death, and his resurrection. On this Palm Sunday, I want to talk to you about the subject of his life. Last week, his birth. This week, his life. I've noticed that uh, God doesn't seem to do things the way that I would do them. And I see this a lot when I look at the life of Jesus. Um, I, I, I like when things are efficient. And when the, just whatever needs to happen, it happens quickly and the right way the first time. And I would think that for God to save the world, that the most efficient way to go about this would be to just sort of appear out of thin air and then do his like God snap the fingers, save the world business type of whatever you want to do to save the world. Just show up and, and get it done. But when I look at the life of Jesus, I have this question why did Jesus have a life? Why? why? Why did he even have a life? Why didn't he just appear and do his powerful God thing to save the world and, and get his thing done? You know, people, people say a lot in, around church, you know, Jesus was, he was born to die. And I think that that's true. But if he came just to die, what took him so long? What, what took him so long? Why was he born like such a normal person? Why did he grow up like such a normal person? Why did he grow up into a man like a normal person? I mean, if he was God who came to die, why was he so human? Last week, we talked about Luke chapters 1 and 2. 
the story behind Jesus' birth. And this week, if you missed last week, you're going to want to go back for some reference because we're going to really build on a lot of what we talked about last week. But you'll be okay, but just go back and listen to it later. This morning, we're picking up the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, which I think I had you turn to if I didn't go ahead and get there. So chapters 1 and 2 deal with the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. John chapter or Luke chapter 3 fast forwards all the way to now they're grown men. So we skip a lot uh, from Jesus age 12 at the end of Luke 2 to now John and Jesus are grown men in chapter 3. So we pick up the story as you start reading in Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, he is doing what John the Baptist does. He is baptizing people. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. And um, speaking of stuff real quick that is weird and doesn't make sense, what's with that? What's with John baptizing people? Like, if you're a church person, you just skip over that. You're like, well, John the Baptist, and he baptized people. Baptism, we know what baptism is. But can we talk for a quick second about how weird this is? That people, hordes of people, like crowds and crowds of people are leaving the city that they live in to go out into the desert to listen to a stinky, hairy man who lives in the desert preach about God, and they're letting this weird man just dunk them up and down in water. Like, not a few people. Like, hordes of people are doing this. Like, what is the deal with this weird stuff? We learned last week that, that John, when his birth was prophesied, it was, we were also told what John's life and ministry were going to be all about. John's life and ministry was about calling the people of God back to God. He, he was a forerunner to prepare the way for the Lord, to turn the hearts of people back to God. So that's the, that's the uh, framework we have for the life of John, the things he said and the things that he did. And, and this is really important to understand. This is what's going to make sense of baptism because John was telling everybody, hey, repent, turn away from your life, the way that you're living your life, and turn back to God. Why did they have to turn back to God? Because the people of Israel, this is what the Old Testament is all about. The Old Testament begins with God calling out this man Abraham and saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, that nation being the nation of Israel. And the reason that God was going to create a great one, one great nation was so that he could demonstrate to all the nations what it looked like to live under the blessing of God. Yeah. So God calls out this people for no real apparent specific reason why them, but he picks them and says, I'm going to make you a great nation and, and demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live in covenant with God, covenant relationship, intimate relationship, because that is the heart of God all along. God's heart from the very beginning, Genesis 1, why did he even make us? He made us for covenant. And so to show the world what that looks like, he says, I'm going to raise up this nation, Israel. So he makes them all these promises. He calls them to do all of this. And the Old Testament is this one big narrative, story after story, but one big narrative showing the complete inability of humanity to uphold their end of the covenant. But also in the midst of this one narrative of humanity's inability to hold up their end of the covenant, we see God's faithfulness to yeah. always hold up his end of the covenant. All they had to do this whole time was follow God. And they just couldn't do it. 
They just couldn't do it. So baptism is, it's, it's another turning of the hearts of the people. All through the Old Testament, God would give them moment after moment, thing after thing, turn your hearts back to me. And baptism, John shows up on the scene and offers baptism as another turning of the hearts of people back to God. So that's why we're, there's all this water business. So John in Luke chapter 3, he's, he's baptizing all of these people. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on to the scene. Jesus steps in to this moment where John is baptizing all of these people, and he tells John to baptize him. And in other accounts, we see John kind of puts up a fight and is like, wait, this seems backwards, but Jesus convinces him to do it. So Jesus is baptized. And again, that is something we could skim over as a story we've all heard, but this is incredible that Jesus would be baptized. It's incredible for two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, it is incredible that Jesus was baptized because as a human, as a human, Jesus steps into the inability of humanity to uphold their end of the covenant, to uphold their repentant hearts because they had repented time after time. They had turned time after time and only to turn back to their own ways. So Jesus, as a human, steps into the inability of humanity in this act of repentance to uphold humanity's end of the bargain for the first time, to step in in his perfection to cover our weakness. Jesus is baptized to say, I'll do it. Not as God, as a man. Number two, this is incredible because Jesus in being baptized and stepping in to the inability of humanity and upholding our end of the bargain by his perfection, he fulfills the old covenant. The covenant that God had originally made with man that man could not uphold, he fulfills it, number one. And number two, in fulfilling the old covenant, he establishes a new one. A new covenant. And and Romans 6, if you turn a few pages in your Bible to Romans 6, it kind of ties this whole bow together for us. Number one, Jesus fulfills that covenant. Number two, he steps in and establishes a new one. And Romans 6 explains that it is not just in this baptism. Maybe you hear the sirens going by. Wake up, everybody. Jesus is alive. Here we go. How does, he, how does he institute a new covenant? Well, Romans 6 tells us that in baptism now, it is not just an act of repentance like it was under the baptism of John, but actually because of Jesus was baptized, not just because he was baptized, but because he then died and because he then rose again. Baptism is our act of stepping into the death of Jesus, buried with him in baptism, Romans 6 says. And we step into his resurrection Romans 6 says, raised to life as we come out of the water. This is the new covenant that Jesus instills. Number one, he fulfills the old. Number two, he makes a brand new one. Not for us to uphold, but one that he upholds from the beginning. And that's all just in him going in the water and coming back out. What happens next is crazy. What happens next is uh, John Chapter, or Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 tells us that the Holy Spirit then descends on Jesus like a dove and the Father speaks audibly from heaven. So that's cool. You know, it's just amazing. And, and, and you could read that and be like, wow, that makes for good TV. 
But, but what's going on here? There's something going on here. It's not just a pyrotechnic show. God's trying to tell us something. He descends on Jesus. He audibly speaks about Jesus. And all of a sudden, in this one moment in the baptism of Jesus, we get, we're given sort of this time and space manifestation of the Trinity in time, in real space. God in three persons manifested in a moment in one location. He identifies, he empowers, he commissions Jesus. And God speaks from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We just threw out another big word there called the Trinity. What's that one all about? The Trinity, the manifestation of God. One God in three persons right here. The son filled with the Holy Spirit, affirmed by the father, to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, to reveal the Father who elevates the Son above every name, who by the power of the Holy Spirit lifts up the Father, who gives the Holy Spirit so that the Son can make a way for us to know the Father so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit and show the Father to the world. What, that's what the Trinity is. <laughs> How does it work? I don't know. It works like that. And that's not all. That's not all that happens in this baptism. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about why, why did God say what he said? Why did the Father speak from heaven what he spoke? He says to Jesus, you are my son. You are my son. If you remember from last week in Luke chapter 1, when Gabriel, the angel, he shows up to Mary and he starts telling her, I know you're a virgin, but you're going to have a son. And he makes all of these promises. He's going to be the Messiah. And one of the things that Gabriel said is that the son, that Jesus, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. Sounds cool, but what's that all about? So backstory here, David was a king of Israel, a mighty king, kind of like in their history, everybody looks back on David as like he was, he was the guy, the king. But if you look at David's life, you realize he was not perfect, but God chose him um, and, and Israel held him in, in high regard and he wasn't perfect, but God saw the best in David, which is just like we talked about last week. We see in, in David again, God sees our faith potential, not our failure potential. And that's what he saw in David. And, and God said about David, I have found in David a man who is after my own heart. And so God sees the best in David and he promises David when the Messiah comes, he's going to come through your lineage, through your line. And when the king of kings comes, he's going to uphold the promise that there will never not be a king on the throne from the line of David. So even if that doesn't all totally make sense, it kind of connects the dots here. So we're going to a quick overview here. So the point is, when you look at David's life, when you look at things that he said as you read through the book of Psalms, when you look at the promises that God gave David, they were promises for David, but more than that, they were prophecies about the Messiah. And so, so much of David was, was, and what he wrote was prophetic about the Messiah, about Jesus, who would not just be king of Israel, but he would bring the kingdom of God. Are we tracking so far? I know we're covering a lot, but, but track with me. So in Psalm chapter 2, David writes this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so Psalm 2 goes on to say uh, this whole prophetic declaration of God speaking to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Speaking of the never-ending 
uh, all-powerful kingdom of God. So when God in Luke chapter 3 speaks to Jesus, you are my beloved son, he is taking this moment and he's marking Jesus. He's marking Jesus as the promised Psalm 2 king, the king of Zion, the king of the holy hill of the Lord, the king of the city of God whose kingdom will never end. He wasn't just telling Jesus he's proud of him. He was marking him as the promised one. You are my son. I want you to write down this word in your notes, kingdom. It's important that we note this word, kingdom. Jesus is the promised king. And then God speaks, in whom I am well pleased. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. And this invokes, again, a prophetic statement made about the Messiah hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 starts off in verse 1. It says, Behold my servant, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. You are my chosen one in whom I delight. And he says this, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. As you jump into verse 6 of that same chapter, we not, we not only hear who is, the promised one, but who is the promised one, but why is the promised one given? Why are we given Jesus? Why are we given this son, this king, in whom the Lord is well pleased? And verses 6 through 9 says, I am the Lord. Here's the why. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant. I want you to write that word down, covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and a new thing I now declare they spring forth, I tell you of them. Wow, that's a lot in one sentence in Luke chapter 3. See, this isn't just a cool moment where the audible voice of God speaks and a dove shows up. This is the moment that God speaks to mark Jesus as both king of the nations and as a new covenant for the nations. He is the king of the nations and he brings a new covenant for the nations. Okay, so why all this backstory? Because we're trying to talk about the life of Jesus. And it's important to see all of what we just talked about. Because as you dive into the next 16 chapters of the book of Luke. And you learn about the life of Jesus. And Luke's record of Jesus' life. And not just his life, but his teachings. It's important to understand this backdrop. Because if you're looking, as you read these teachings. If you're looking mainly for instruction. If you're looking for instruction through Jesus' teaching, you're honestly going to be a little bit confused and not get a whole lot of instruction. You know, do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there. If you're looking mainly for instruction, you're not going to get a lot of it because you'll learn that the focus of Jesus' teaching isn't instruction, it's revelation. It's revelation. So as you read the book of Luke, don't read it primarily for the lens that you're trying to learn something. Read through the book of Luke with the lens that you're trying to see someone. Come on. As you read chapters 3 through 8, I see these next chapters kind of split up 
roughly into two main themes. The first theme of chapters 3 through 8 being Jesus' revelation of himself as a new covenant for the nations. I want to give you this lens as you read through Luke chapters 3 through 8. So how does he reveal himself as this new covenant? Well, in baptism, we've talked a lot about it already. Jesus steps into the old covenant that humanity could not keep for even one single generation where Israel was supposed to be set apart as the people of God. They couldn't pull it off and Jesus steps in as a human to fulfill humanity's side of the equation of the covenant that God had been faithful to the whole time. Right after his baptism, the Bible tells us that Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. And he has this 40-day fast in the desert where he eats no food and is completely by himself in the desert. And at the end of this 40-day fast, he is tempted by the devil. What's this 40-day fast all about? Well, in this 40-day fast, it's representing Israel's 40-year journey out of the exodus of Egypt into the promised land. It represented 40, his 40 days in the wilderness represented their 40 years of wandering happening. Why did this wandering happen? It happened. It happened as a result of not being able to trust God, not being able to uphold their end of the bargain. Even after the miraculous 10 plagues of Egypt, even after the splitting of the Red Sea, they turn away time and time again. And so Jesus steps into that 40 years of wandering as a human, hungry like they were, weak like they were. He fasts in the wilderness, standing against temptation, standing against the temptation to turn, fulfilling the victory for humanity as a human that humanity could never win for itself against temptation and against distraction from our faithful and powerful God. He is a new covenant for the nations. He returns from the wilderness then after these 40 days in victory over the devil. And he begins teaching publicly. He comes into Nazareth where he was born. He enters into a synagogue and on the Sabbath day, he stands up and he reads out of the book of Isaiah in Luke chapter four. He reads these verses. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It sounds a lot like Isaiah 42, doesn't it? But it's actually Isaiah 61. And so he reads all of this, and then he sits down in front of these people, and he looks at them, and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. In the beginning, humanity was given a mandate commissioned to spread the glory and the kingdom of God all over the earth. But instead, humanity rebelled and turned away from God to build their own kingdom and go by their own ways. And Jesus steps in as a human and declares, I am fulfilling the commission that humanity could not uphold. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to spread this to all the nations. And by the Holy Spirit, I'm bringing the kingdom to earth, not just as God, but as a human. After Luke 4, Jesus begins traveling everywhere. And most of the stories that you get in these chapters aren't about Jesus teaching really anything at all. They're all these miracle stories, (laughs) stories about Jesus healing the sick, healing the disease, setting the oppressed free. And as a human in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus shows he is conquering the brokenness caused by the rebellion of humanity. 
He calls 12 apostles to himself to be his close, closest uh, followers. So let's go back again, just real quick, to that moment where Gabriel shows up to Mary. And he tells Mary, you're going to have this son, and he's going to sit on the throne of David. He says something else right after that. Gabriel says he also prophesies not just that he will be given the throne of David, but that he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. Okay, we got David. Who's Jacob? (laughs) Jacob was the third of the patriarchs of the faith. Maybe you've heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These foundational men that the faith was built on. And Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was through Jacob that this promise to Abraham starts to turn into a nation, not just a family. So Jacob has these 12 sons that turn into the 12 tribes of Israel. The point of these sons, these brothers, they were supposed to carry on the promise. They were supposed to raise up a unified people who would walk under the blessing of God and display him to the nations. That's what they were meant to be. They were meant to be a unified people of God, but they were weak (laughs) and they fought and they divided and they had wars against each other and killed each other and split up lands and completely blew it. In summary, they were a mess, kind of like how we see most things go. They were a mess and they couldn't fulfill who they were called to be. So here comes Jesus. He steps into humanity. He steps into the story and he calls to himself 12 apostles, 12 ambassadors, 12 commissioned ones. These men who they come from all different backgrounds, different careers, different ages, different personalities. Some of them previously had fought Uh, against the Roman occupation. Some of them previously had worked for the Roman occupation. I mean, these guys were not the typical 12 guys you'd pick thinking that they're just going to get along. Some of them are educated. Some of them are uneducated. This hodgepodge group of 12 men that Jesus calls with all of their differences and Jesus builds a new band of brothers who would birth a new nation, not an ethnic nation, but a nation born of the Holy Spirit, who would fulfill the commission given to humanity from the beginning, take this glory to the nations. And it goes on, on and on and on, thing after thing that Jesus does, teaching less by instruction and more by revelation. And he's demonstrating time after time that Jesus didn't simply come to tell you what to do and tell you where to go and tell you how to act. Jesus came to be who we could never be. Jesus came to do what we could never do. And Jesus came so that we could have what we could never have in our own weakness. We can now have by his grace. That's chapters 3 through 8. <laughs> As you read on through 9, chapters 9 through 19, the focus shifts from revelation of this new covenant to revelation of this new kingdom of which Jesus is undoubtedly the king. These chapters are loaded with parable after parable, metaphor after metaphor, where Jesus is explaining and he's illustrating the kingdom of God. How does it look? How does it function? How do you participate in this new kingdom that Jesus is establishing? And over and over again, Jesus is readjusting our focus. You want to write that word down, focus. He's readjusting our focus. 
He's readjusting our focus from using our lives to build our own kingdom for our own good. And he's shifting our focus to the opportunity that we have to leverage our lives for for the reward, for the fruit, for the treasure found in eternal life in the kingdom of God. Jesus reveals a brand new kingdom and he reveals that he is the king of this kingdom. And as you read about this kingdom, as you look at this kingdom, it's so different than all the other kingdoms. Jesus makes it clear that to get into this kingdom, to enter in and have the approval of this king, it has nothing to do with your social position. It has nothing to do with your religious position, your socioeconomic class, the name that you carry or what anybody else thinks about you. Entrance into this kingdom simply and solely depends on your response to the invitation of God. Do you accept? Do you accept this new king? Will you bow in humility? Will you just repent from your own flailing life and inability to uphold what God has called you to? Will you repent and fall in the mercy of God and will you receive his grace? Or will you arrogantly reject this king? And choose to continue on with your own way of life, leveraging the world for your own benefit in this life, instead of giving your life for the life to come. It's quite a life. What do we do with this? (laughs) What do we do with this 16 chapters of there's all this revelation and this man, Jesus? What, what, What do we actually do with all of this? Like I said earlier, God doesn't seem to do anything the way that I would do them, the, way, the same way I would do it. And when I look back at Jesus' teaching, you know, it seems to focus way more on who Jesus is than on what we should do or shouldn't do. Yeah. And maybe that's the point. Right. Maybe that's the point in all of this. See, I I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12. There's a few verses here, a a teaching of Jesus that I think captures this so powerfully. He begins in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, starts off with this, you know, lightweight phrase. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. (laughs) Oh, real cute, Jesus. (laughs) It's one of those bumper sticker things that that reads great, but it's like, cool. You ever heard of the coronavirus, God? He says, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. And he goes on to talk about how we can so easily spend our lives focusing on so many things. And when we focus on all of these other things, it just leads to so much anxiety. And anxiety doesn't do us any good. Jesus asked this really uncomfortable, let's call it rude question, kind of offended. He says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious? It's like, whoa. You know, you're like, I'm trying to be anxious over here. You should be gentle with me, Lord. And he's like, you're not winning. You're you're not even accomplishing anything. So so why are you doing this? Why are you being so anxious? If you skip down to verse 29 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus continuing the same thought. He says this in verse 29. 29, after explaining things that we can focus on and that lead to the anxiety in our life, he says, do not seek what you are to eat and what, are you, what you are to drink, and don't be worried. 
Again, kind of like, cool. <laughs> Great Bible verse. But if you look at kind of the original language, you know, this word seek, you know, I think that sometimes we can read this and it's like, gosh, don't, don't go to the store and buy groceries and don't go to the faucet and get water. But the word seek there, it doesn't just mean like looking for something. Like don't ever look for food. That, that's not what, it's like, that's not exactly the point. The word more means, it, it's less about looking for something and the word is more about looking to something. Yeah. Focusing on something. Trusting in something. I mean, when life is like it is right now, yeah. right? When life is like it is right now and things are shaking, we all find out really quick what we've been trusting in. We find out really quick what we've been trusting, what we've been trusting in because we start to get really anxious whenever that thing shakes. Yeah. What, what is it? What, what, what is it? What, what is it that you've been trusting in? What is it that once it started shaking in the last couple of weeks, you started to get really nervous? Your job, your stocks, your routine, your schedule, your health, mm-hmm. you, yeah. <laughs> just you. Jesus says, don't, don't look to you. And he says, and don't be worried. Don't be worried. The, this, what we translate into don't be worried is kind of one Greek word. It's, it's like a word that has a metaphor in it. And the metaphor that the word carries is, is this idea of, of, it's like a word used for a ship that's out at sea being tossed by a storm. And Jesus is saying, you don't want to be like that. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be tossed by the winds and the waves of life. What he's saying is don't anchor yourself to you. No. Don't anchor yourself to you because you're like a ship <laughs> tossed around in a storm. He goes on and Verse 30, he says, all the nations of the world seek after these things, trust in these things, look to these things, but your father knows that you need them. So can I just say real quick, God knows you need food. (laughs) God knows you need water. God knows you need the things you're looking to. This isn't about the food. This isn't about, don't think about what you need to drink. That's not the point of all of this. He's saying these aren't bad things. The things that you trust in, they're not bad things. They're just bad things to anchor to. Everybody seeks after these things or your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek, look to, focus on, anchor to his kingdom. And all of these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Again, it's not about the possessions. It's not about don't ever eat again, don't ever drink again, don't ever have a dollar again. That's not what he's saying. When he's saying sell your possessions, he says pull up your anchor. Pull up your anchor from all of these things that you've been so rooted in, that you've been so focused on, and anchor yourself to me. Anchor yourself to me for where your treasure is, where your trust is, where your focus is. That's where your heart is going to be also. And so I wonder if the point of everything that Jesus was teaching was maybe simply he's just teaching us to focus. Focus more on him and focus less on us. Because 
when we focus on Him, He doesn't shake. And when what we're anchored to doesn't shake, our heart doesn't shake either. Maybe that's what Jesus wants to teach you this morning. Stop thinking so much about you and anchor yourself to Jesus. He is a new way of living in relationship with God. He is the king of a new reality where we can live under the rule and reign of influence of God himself. And I just think that that's a big deal. So I want to pray for us as we close out on Palm Sunday, celebrating the coming of God, focusing on his life. And I'm just going to pray simply for us that we would respond. I love that Jesus doesn't just go through all the specific instances of what could be happening in your life, because that's how I feel this morning talking with you. I could maybe say, maybe you have this going on. Maybe you have that going on, but the point isn't to focus on you. Let's all turn our hearts to Jesus because Jesus always seems to be the right answer. (laughs) No matter what I have going on, he always seems to be the right place to land. And so I'm just going to pray. I believe right now the Holy Spirit is leading you and showing you something in your life that maybe you're focusing on and you need to anchor yourself to him. Or you might be watching this this morning and realizing that you have never been made free in this new covenant. You've never received by faith the grace of God and been born again as a child of His so that you can live and follow Him. If that's you this morning, I want to pray with you as well. You can give your life to Jesus right here, right now, and we'd love to do that with you. Jesus, we thank you that you come. We thank you for your life. We thank you that you didn't just appear and do a thing. You came and lived a life as a human to be everything we could not be, to do everything that we could not do so that we could have by your grace what we could never have in our weakness. We celebrate you right now. And for anybody, Lord, who's watching right now who has not been born again, Lord, we just pray that you would pull on their heart right now and make it impossible to turn this off without making this decision. And that you this morning, just pray with me, God, I repent. I turn away from living my own life and I surrender into your kingdom. Forgive me. Make me new. I want to follow you and fill me, Holy Spirit, with you, with your life, and help me follow you. Lord, we thank you so much for our time together. And we pray that as we go on this week of Passion Week, that we would see you in new ways. We'd hear you in new ways and we'd follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.